in three, two, one, and we're live. Crazy Dutch bastard. What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me sure. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. Do that deed. Tonight, we have a very special guest, Mr. John Tig Tegan. He is one of the heroes of Benghazi. You guys better know it as... 13 hours, but we have him here tonight to talk about his military career, what happened over in Benghazi, and today's political climate. So without further ado, John, welcome to the show. Uh, So I just want to go over a couple things, you know, in your past. So when you were young, you came from a broken home, you decided that you wanted to go into the military, you went under the delayed entry program, you went into the United States Marines, Uh, you went to 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, and you were a sergeant and an infantry leader, and it kind of paid off in spades for you later on in life because it kind of gave you that dedication to duty and uh, just kind of living your life the way that you do live your life and being a protector of everything that we hold dear in the United States. So can you tell us a little bit about your younger age before joining the military and what made you and what drove you so hard to join the military? Well, you know, it was just, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, too bad of a childhood, but it was, it was a broken home, you know, uh, single, single mom from, you know, since I can remember, um, you know, multiple, you know, obviously multiple, you know, a couple stepdads growing up, stuff like that, moved around multiple schools, you know, went from Iowa to uh, Colorado. So pretty much been in Colorado since I was eight. Um, not really a native, but pretty much a native. Uh, been here long enough to, to be one. And, you know, just kind of getting bounced around from school to school. And, you know, initially wanted to actually join the Army, wanted to be a, an Apache pilot, but you know, they don't really allow people to uh, wear glasses and fly. So, uh, so since I was a four eyes, I had to, I had to pick something else. And I was uh, watching a full metal jacket and said, that's what I want to do. So I joined the Marine Corps. And so when you went in the Marine Corps, uh, a lot of people, it's kind of a shock to their system when they go in, even if they've had like a strong worth ethic ethic or uh, they've done something like that before whether they played sports whether they were super academic and they were uh, really dedicated to what they did but it's kind of a shock to them when they get there how did your basic training how did it go I guess for you it'd be boot camp but how did it turn out for you did you like it did you not like it did you say this is what's going to be it for me for the rest of my life or how did it work out for you I don't think anybody really likes boot camp (laughs) no matter what um but I mean, I didn't. I didn't think it was bad. It was gonna be. Um, I mean, physically, it was pretty easily. Mentally, it wasn't all that challenging. I think it was just the mental part for me was actually just sitting there, 
just over and over, kind of like almost doing the same thing, especially when at, at MCRD, you're watching the planes take off while you're staying in the middle of the freaking fire watch at, you know, one, two in the morning, just right. looking, man, what the hell am I doing? Um, but I mean, I, I think we had it extremely easy uh, when I went in because, you know, we had 84 recruits to like three drill instructors where normally you had like six or seven. Um, so we got away with a ton of crap, man. I mean, it was, I think it was more on the DIs than it was on us, man. I mean, I laughed so many times and I got in trouble just for laughing so many times because to me, yeah. it's just so much fun stuff. Is going. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but it, it, it taught me a lot of discipline and got me, you know, to think a little bit different, not be so as, so I guess, violent and aggressive. You know, kind of it tamed me down a lot compared to what I was before I went in. I mean, I was just, yeah, I would just fly off the rocker for you know. You, you mean you see it nowadays, especially with the with the left protester man, they're completely off their rocker. But it just it it, it brought me back down to where I can con- control my actions versus my actions controlling me. Um, so I it definitely prepared me for for the future, and I was I was going to do it for you know for forever, and then. You know, I just eventually, um, about six months before I got out, I ended up getting married. So, and the wife was going into the army and they don't really, you know, combine the army and the Marines together too much. So it's, I decided to get out and become a a dependent. And so when you do this and you get out and you become a dependent, what brings you back into contract work? What was the event that brings you back? Because you do just a normal John Q public job as your wife's in the military. What brings you back into contracting? I tried to go back in after 9-11, obviously. And, um, but I was, I got out, you know, I was 40% disabled, you know, due to my back. Cause when I got out, I used to, you know, medical problems, but, um, so I went to go back to re-sign up and they just looked at me and was like, man, we don't, we got so many people sign up right now. You're, they will never, they'll never take you back in. Uh, so I was like, whatever. So, you know, the wife, she ended up actually going back over to Kuwait and I stayed home doing a heating and air conditioning, which, you know, a lot of people say people, you know, they just go and they do it for the money, this and that. But, you know, I was making five to 600 bucks a day doing heating and air conditioning and, you know, found out about contracting while the wife was overseas and it just wasn't something I cared to do. I did it cause it paid really good money. Um, so found out about the contracting and actually went overseas and, you know, the first year I was over there, I think we were making like 1280 an hour, something like that. Wow. So, you know, but it was all tax free, you right. know, but it, and, you know, doing security work, doing that, you know, it was a, I don't know, I just liked it a lot better. I didn't have to deal with people as much. And then I, uh, you know, I found out about Blackwater and again, went over there, started doing that. And still you're making between, you know, five to $800 a day, depending on the contract, depending on the, you know, what gets bid that year. So again, a lot of people don't realize it. It's not really always about the money. It's just about the the situation it's about the job it's about the camaraderie it's you know it's about being back in the field that you liked and so you know i just i loved it again i could stay at home and made you know five six hundred bucks a day but i'd rather be over there doing something i cared for and so comparing it to the military when you were in the marine corps and contracting 
is because I've talked to a lot of people on this show that until they go over to like Delta or until they go into special forces, they don't really figure out. They, they think that, um, that the military is going to be a certain way and they don't see it that way until they reach like special forces, Delta force, things like that. Uh, Marine recon, uh, when you got into contracting, is that where you thought like, yeah, this is, this is what I thought about the military. This is what the job that I thought we were supposed to be doing, you know, cause you talked about watching the flight line, the planes take off, doing CQ, all that kind of stuff, all the normal, regular military stuff. Is that the military that you, uh, wanted to join and kind of, uh, strove towards? I- you know, I kind of base all my mentality off of, you know, like a lot of people are just coming in off of movies. You know, you try to, right. you know, watch more like documentary stuff. And, you know, so when I went in, of course, that's what you think the military is going to be like. But, man, I mean, it's, I, again, I didn't serve during combat, so I'm assuming it's more similar, but still not the same. Because there's, a man, you got to do so much dumb stuff. I mean, they, they, they make... the. They'll, they'll take everybody to a water park and make it miserable. Um, it's just the way the military does. Everything's like safety or they, they have regulations on top of regulations. Right. Um, but, you know, going over contracting, it, it was nothing like I would have thought the military would have been anyway. So I think it's just because you're more, you're still more of an individual when you're contracting versus the military, you, you know, you are a unit, you are a team, uh, especially the special forces guys, you know, again, I wasn't SF, so I don't really know how they operated. Um, but I'm assuming they always traveled as teams, you know, contractors, we always, you know, usually travel as individuals, you know, flying back and forth. So, you know, and I actually went into the real contracting version, my first uh, year of contracting, I didn't know what to expect. Um, again, if not, not really all that thrill seeking, really. Um, a lot more boring days, which you want more boring days than exciting days, because uh, in the exciting days, that's when things go bad. Um, but you know, I did enjoy it. But I, you know, I, I guess doing a lot of stuff that I did would be more expected, like what the military SF guys would do. But for the infantry, what I was doing, I would never expect them to do anything like what we were doing contracting. Now, when you talk about that and you say that when you're a contractor, you mostly travel alone. Uh, and, and when we go back to like the special force guys or the Delta guys, they travel in teams. Uh, in Benghazi, when you were there, was that a pretty tight team, even though that you guys uh, traveled separately, you guys did different contract? Now, you were the most senior guy over there, if I'm correct, in, in, in the contractors. Was it a tight team um, as it shows in kind of the movie and in the book, or or did you guys just kind of grow to know each other over there? No, we just, I think the only, we just grew to know each other. I think the only two people that are really tight was uh, Tonto and Boone because they worked together a lot previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I worked, I, I did a couple um, training classes and stuff with, uh, with Jack, uh, but again, never worked with uh, Oz or, uh, or uh, uh Rome and mm-hmm. I worked with the team leader actually I worked with the team leader quite a bit uh prior to that in some other locations but again he was just that's the thing with contractors you know we again we only knew each other really for 30 days right uh, and you know as as a whole unit so 
you just kind of, you know, you know what each other's capabilities are for the most part, because you have a basic idea just from the, uh, the train up that you have to do uh, before you actually become uh, GRS. So that's yeah, what, you know, everybody falls back on it. And a lot of the guys that are out there in, in the small groups really ain't all that cocky because they know that we have to rely on each other a lot more than you do at like a flagpole. It's what we call it, the bigger bases where there's like, you know, multiple guys versus a handful. Right. Uh, it's def- definitely a different mentality, but I, I would say that's probably more like, again not serving with the sf guys that's probably more what they're like but you know being an infantry even in a big uh platoon squad we were all pretty tight even then right and so when we're over in benghazi and you're kind of looking around as you get to benghazi this of course is not your first contracting gig you've, you've done other things you've worked with the team leader before what are your initial thoughts when you get on the ground because from all you know, reading and research and everything, the place was a disaster um, on the ground. What are your first thoughts as you hit the ground and, and you look around and see what's going on? The very first time I went in? Yeah. It was pitch ass dark. I, I couldn't see a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that helps things. <laughs> so uh, it was pretty easy it's like hey here we are middle of the night can't see anything right uh, and then the sun but, comes up and you're like oh okay <laughs> yeah we're a whole other city by then but yeah it was um you know again we what it was it was i mean it was a war zone i mean there was just buildings just big holes you know tank size you know, well i can't say tank size what's the, what's the size of the tank i mean I would say you know, like 20 foot by 20 foot holes in the side of buildings, you know, mm-hmm. half a building. You can see just bullet pop marks from, you know, dish guns, which is a pretty much a 50 cal all the way down to, you know, and, you know, an AK round. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a dump. You know, I can't say what it was like before it, but it was, it was a pretty much a crapshoot from the very first time I landed until we actually went wheels up out of Benghazi in the final day. And, you know, from what I've told from the other guys that keep going, it's still the same. It really hasn't improved, you know, because, you know, after after the 9-11, 2012, Americans pretty much abandoned Libya. Right. And so, you know, I, I talked to uh, Jim Irwin last week, and he was talking about some of the stuff that he was doing over in, like, Iraq. Um, he, he was in Afghanistan. And his big takeaway from Iraq, and I, I wonder if it's the same takeaway you have from Libya, is that it's been this way forever, and it's never going to change. It doesn't matter what we do, uh, no matter what, what we do for the country, it's never going to change their opinion of Americans, Westerners. It's going to stay the same because that that is drilled in and born in over centuries what's going on i i don't know what it is like now uh but libya was the first muslim country where i would act where they would come up shake our hands saying it's honored to meet american glad you're here you know well they bought our they would buy our food when we sat in restaurants mm-hmm. you know or they would or the restaurant owners would give us our free our food for free mm-hmm. we never so Again, I, I, I think we actually, I think, actually won their hearts and minds um, okay. because they hated Gaddafi that much, especially down in Benghazi. I mean, a lot of, you know, Gaddafi only went down there, I believe, one time. And he almost got assassinated and never went down there again. 
Um, so the Libyans, from my point of view, they they truly wanted to work with us, wanted to be uh, partners with us. You know, at least the locals that we talked to, and we had to interact with the locals all the time because that was our job, just to kind of get their feel, get their take, see what the threat was from the local populace. Mm -hmm. And again, never, even when we ran into checkpoints for the most part, you know, I would, you'd say you're an American, they would just let you go. I mean, hell, we couldn't even do that stuff over in, you know, three of the other major locations that I've been at, three other countries right? that I've been at. And they would, they, I mean, they're supposed to be our partners and they freaking hated us. Right. And so, uh, did you like Libya? I mean, as, as a contract, I don't mean, do you necessarily want to move to the country or anything, but did you like it as a contract being there? Yeah. I thought, I mean, walking around, I didn't feel like I had a target on my back. Right. And so, um, you know, did, like, no, go ahead. You know, like, you know, we we'd go out and do things in some of the other countries and, you know, your head is on a, on, on a swivel, you know, you're always checking your six every couple seconds, you know, you even know you're walking around and it's supposed to be like the safe areas there. I mean, I'd walk down the street and I'd, you know, it felt like you're back home for the most part. I mean, you just didn't have that threatening vibe. It was kind of like, you know, I guess what easiest way is like, you know the mobs control the street not the the mobsters you know like back in chicago you know during uh you know the crazy days of the tommy guns and stuff but right you know that's kind of the feel you know the threat towards us was not really that high especially in the beginning was because they're more worried about trying to build their country and you know get rid of the Gaddafi forces still and so do you think with us being over there that we were uh, making a difference at, at that time. I mean, by helping, uh, of course, you know, uh, he's gone, but with us being there as a staying as small as it may have been a, a staying force, do you think it was helping towards making it a better place, a cleaner place, a safer place, or do you think we might've been keeping status quo over there? You know, I don't, again, I don't, Without knowing what it looked like beforehand, right. I mean, by the, by my time of my last trip, it had quieted down a lot. A lot, not as much gunfire, not as much as of, of explosions. The streets were a lot cleaner. Um, they were starting to rebuild. A, build. They're starting to build a lot more um, apartment buildings on the uh, on the west side of town. Um, a lot of the they're building brand new hotels on the coast. They're trying to get you know they're trying to hope tourism within about another year or two. So, I mean, they were looking positive to the future where tourism was never in a thought, you know, under Gaddafi. Um, so again, this is just us talking with the locals, especially the hotel owners, you know, hearing their vision of everything going forward. I mean, they had nothing but positivity coming out of this whole entire thing. And then, you know, after, you know, 9-11 hit, and then, you know, we, as the major firepower pulled out, you know, the country went down a crap hole and, a lot of people forget that, you know, a week after that happened, thousands, tens of thousands of locals actually attacked Ansar al-Sharia, which is the uh, militia that, or the Islamic group that attacked us and pushed them out of Benghazi. You know, a couple hundred of them, I believe, got killed in the process. So, again, that's just goes to show, you know, the sad thing with Biden coming to power, he was part of that administration and they had no clue of the mindset of locals on the ground and, and actually the, 
I don't want to say the love that they had for Ambassador Stevens because they were pissed when he got killed. Right. They, yeah. I mean, they were literally pissed. What other country has has that ever happened where they killed an American? Tens of thousands of the locals come and rise up and, and attack the attackers. Right. And, and so what do you think, uh, John, what do you think went wrong? It, it, I mean, it seemed like it was going in the right direction. Uh, the the civilians love the ambassador. What went wrong? Politicians. Okay, so let's talk about that. Before this happens, um, what are your thoughts on the ambassador coming there at that time? Because we know what an important time that was. What are your thoughts on the politics of him coming over there at that time? Because that was absolutely a message to the world, I think. I mean, him coming down into Gazi without security was stupid. Right. Um, and we all said it amongst ourselves. I mean, this is just dumb. Um, but, you know, we, we just do what we do. And, you know, we just, you know, all right, if he wants to come down, we'll augment our, our security to help him out. And, you know, we knew his plans in and out. And, you know, again, it was just a, it was just a front before uh, Hillary Clinton came down. She was supposed to come down a month afterwards. And, okay. Supposed to have all kinds of stuff set up. I think, yeah, sometime in October, she was supposed to come down in, into Tripoli, then down into Benghazi. And he was supposed to have a, uh, you know, another site for the new uh, consulate that was going to be set up, a more 100% permanent consulate. And it was really, he was just setting up the dog and pony show for Hillary, you know, the weapons thing, you know, whatever. Were they planning on, you know, kidnapping him? I don't think they were planning on kidnapping him because when we left and they found him at 1.30 in the morning and they drug him out, if they were planning on kidnapping, they would have known what he looked like and they would have known who they had when they had him. Um, so, again, I think he was just there. It was a target of opportunity. Again, that, that consulate was such a soft target. You know, we knew it. Even the state guys knew it. Um, you know, they kept, re they're requesting for more support from 2011 until they got attacked. So, I mean, but the timing, again, I don't, we don't really think about dates over there to tell you the truth. You know, we don't keep track of, of those things because every day to us is the same. So, you know, you always know they're going to try to do, usually do things on anniversaries, but and again, we just we just take things as they come for the most part, you know, especially, you know, the, the bad thing with the agency is how they work is everything is separated. So they may get threat information that we don't even receive, even though we're part of we are the security team for them. It's just the way they operate. And, you know, unfortunately, it bit them in the ass. Well, and, and I think that's a big thing, you know, when you talk about the politics of it. When you have a, a force of your guys that are protecting compounds and your whole job is to protect the Americans that are over there, it's vital that you guys get that information. Yet we have these things where we have all these levels of security in place that, well, they don't need to know this and they don't need to know that. But overall over there, you're going to need to know everything that's moving around. That's the only way to make a, a, a tight schedule, to make a tight plan, is to know everything that's moving, everything that's going on. And it doesn't seem like that ever happened to you. And we'll get into it a little bit as all of this kind of kicks off. But that's a problem. And I don't think that it's been fixed. Um, I don't, 
I don't think it's fixed now and I don't think it's going to be fixed in the future. So how do we move past that with guys that are doing this kind of job? Again, it, it, it's hard to say what, what uh, may have changed within the agency. Uh, I mean, it, the training uh, got better for the state department from what I'm told. Um, you know, I don't know how, you know, how truth it is. I, I know they go for a longer training course, but you know, just cause you go longer doesn't mean the quality is good. Uh, but again, I'm not going to bash because I don't really know what the, what really changed with them. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's until, until people are actually held accountable, uh, for things like this. Like, I mean, like if you sign off on security measures saying, oh, they don't really need it to me that you just put their lives in your hands. And if something happens to them, you should be 100% held liable for minimum of involuntary manslaughter if they are killed. You want you want to, you want to make changes. That's how you make changes. And you want to be in leadership to make those changes. That's why you're in leadership. You're taking that responsibility and that role to say yay or nay. So guess what? Then if somebody dies, that is your fault, and you need to be held accountable for that. Not be promoted just so you can move out of the way or fired just because okay it was a bad mistake. No, you just cost somebody's life because you wanted to save twenty thousand dollars. Right. And so let's get into that night because I want to go over a couple of things that really stick out to me. So 9.32 p.m., the first call goes out. Uh, you're in building D getting ready for bed. Uh, five minutes, you're ready to go, correct? Yeah, approximately about five minutes. Okay, so 15 minutes after you're in the car, you get out. Someone gives an order to stand down. Now, that's been a point of contention between people that were there uh, judicial committees, all that kind of stuff. I want to talk about that. That was when the first stand down order came, correct? When you get out of the car, you, you know, we're losing, uh, momentum here. Is there a stand down order given? Yep. By the chief of base, Bob. Okay. And does he give that stand down order to you or to someone else in the team? Directly to me. Okay. Did he give a reason why he gave that stand down order? So the conversation went pretty much, well, went like this. I get out of the car said, well, you know, we need to get over the now. We're losing initiative. They're digging in. Chief of base looks back at me, stand down. We need to wait. And I said, why do we go? What are we waiting for? He said, we need to come up with a plan. It's too late to come up with a plan. When you get over, the eyes on. We need to see what's going on. Then we can come up with a plan. Then we can make our move. And, and again, I said, well, while we're sitting here, they're digging in. We're losing the initiative. And that's when uh, he, he said that, Chief of base said something to the team leader and team leader said, take, get back in the car. Okay. So you get back in the car. 25 minutes approximately now we're at. So about 10 minutes after you get out, get the stand down order. You guys start rolling. Yep. The last draw was for us when they came on the radio and they said, if you don't get here now, we're all going to fucking die. So you're approximately a mile away. Uh, as the crow flies. Okay. So you, you start moving now with us, uh, being back here and not being able to see what's going on on the ground. You can see from your location, you can see what's going on, not necessarily up close, but you can see what's going on. You can hear what's going on. Uh, you tell them that you go can't ahead. see anything. You can hear, you can hear things. Cause again, it's over a mile away. So you can't see anything. I mean, you got, you got houses, you got trees, you got, you know, we got, 
three-story shopping centers in between mm-hmm. us and consulates. So you can't see it at all. Okay. Um, and you can you can hear it. Um, so yeah, I mean, we just know they're being attacked. But again, even when I came out of the the initial buildings to meet up with the team later, you hear the gunfire. I mean, it's like okay, whatever. It's it's Benghazi. You know, you hear gunfire now and then. Right. Right. <laughs> so. And so, uh, before you guys roll out at that twenty-five minute mark, you you've been given the stand down order. Now, Tonto says that he was given the stand down order twice too, so a, a total of three times. Do you know when those stand down orders came to him? Was it in the same timeline, or is this comes uh, for something else, or was that in the same timeline? Um, I think he got the he actually got a wait, not really a stand down order. Um. He, that the the first one came right when we got ready, um, and I don't remember if the second one was before I got out. I think the second one was before I got out of the car, and then then I got out. And I'll, again, we after that one, we didn't wait again. Right. So you guys leave. Uh, you you head that direction. You break up in two teams to get into uh, the the area. You got you. Jack and Roan, you're going to the front gate, correct? And then you uh, have uh you have Tonto and uh, boom. boom going to the back. Um thoughts on front and back as you're getting to it. Um getting into it, because I know you saw stuff immediately as you pulled up. So as you're coming up, what do you see going on? Yeah, as we start pulling up, uh, there's you three C three militiamen uh, engaging down the the road that leads to the consulate, and you know I think it was like two militia guys by a truck, and then a third one with an RPG. So obviously, we again we don't know who these people are. So right. we pull up and and we get on the car, you know, on the opposite side that they're on, you know, and just we come up with our weapons until the the interpreter can uh, ensure that they're friendlies, I guess. Or similar. So here's a question that, that has popped up in the interviews that I've watched you, uh, of course, seen the movie and in the book and everything. Of course, these 17 Feb guys who were supposed to be working with you, they're not wearing uniforms and things like that. They're not easily identified. Was there no kind of hierarchy or, class or instruction given to you guys to know who you needed to talk to if things went sideways on you on the ground because it seems like every time you roll up you don't know good guy bad guy anything is there anything that's put in place that that tells you you're going to look in this direction or you might talk to this person or this is where they tend to gather up or anything like that nope um we knew uh the the like the head commander guy mm-hmm. um Again, these other guys, there was no really command structure within the group because it was just a bunch of citizens that came together and they're trying to form a military unit is really what it was. So, I mean, some of them knew how to shoot guns. Some of them didn't. They had no uniforms. You know, some guys didn't have shoes half the time. So it was just random stuff going on. Um, you know, the, the main compound of theirs was closer to the consulate than we were um, by probably a good freaking qu- three, you know, three quarters of a mile. I mean, they were, they were right there. Um, but what from what I've been told, the only real contact they had with 17 Feb was the commanding officer 
and he had actually left that day out of the country conveniently. So, so they really had no contact with 17 Feb. But it seems over and over that we're told, hey, these are your guys. These are who you're working with. This is what you're going to do. There's nothing in place with even agency people like, hey, we can at least get in contact with someone. So we, you know, we, we tried to do that. We tried to, you know, go to where we could work with a couple of their uh, good disciplined guys and train with them and get to know them. Um, we tried multiple times. But it was just they were weren't one hundred percent trustworthy, mm-hmm. you know. That's why they didn't really they weren't there to protect our compound either. Uh, they were just they were just protecting the state department. I mean, so yeah, there was. I mean, they were over there training them with, on their compound, but you know that we couldn't really verify the individual. So we instead of training possible Al Qaeda. Or Ansar Sharia member, we decided not to ever go train them. And so, as you're moving through, you you go you go guns up on these guys. Uh, you have your translator figure out if these are the good guys. Now, as you move towards uh, where the ambassador's at, the RPG that you talked about, you see that guy going back and forth. Are you at the compound yet, or that is that when you get to the compound, you can see the guy moving back and forth? Oh, uh, you're talking about that when he was shooting at us, right? And then uh, you actually shot him. Yeah. So he, the the they counter after we pushed the initial attackers off. We we're there searching for the ambassador. We got counter assaulted, and the initial assault was initiated by a uh, RPG fire, and the back gate got left open during the uh, the our first initial wave onto the compound, and is what he was doing. He was getting in the view, shooting, getting out of the way, reloading, come back in view and shooting. Um, again, it might've been like his fourth or fourth RPG or fifth RPG by the time I got up on the roof and moved across. And yeah, I gauged him with the, you know, 10, 15 round volley of fire. And then, you know, I saw him fall backwards and that was it. And all the gunfire from the, uh, coming in ceased. And so, as everything stopped, as you look around the compound, because uh, it was like a like an eight or a nine acre compound, correct? Yep. And it was almost built up shotgun style, where front to back. Um, of course, there's an entrance and an exit, you know, front gate and back gate, but it's pretty much a straight run through. There's it doesn't break off and go into different directions and everything. So everything's kind of funneled, from what I understand, correct? Okay, so you move up. Now you go in looking for the ambassador, correct? You take a couple of, of times into the ambassador to look for him, correct? Yeah, I did. Okay, and so what do you see inside? Um, because it's got to be like extreme heat because it's been burning for a while. Um, you got extreme heat. You can't breathe. What's going on as you're looking? Are, are you yelling for him? Are you trying to bring him to your voice? What, what are you trying to do? No, I mean, uh, in, well, initially my first search was in the main area. I went up to the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the gate where the, the safe room gate door, you know, it was, it was locked and shut. The still gate was, mm-hmm. so I, I shouted for his name three times, no answer. And then, you know, you know, came back you know, and went and started searching in the safe room area. You know, you're not, you're not screaming for him. You're just, you know, cause 
I'm pretty sure he could hear us talking and moving and because I couldn't see shit. I'm bumping into things and I'm cussing. I'm, you know, trying to hold my breath while yelling and while you're smacking your shin. And, right. you know, uh, you know, in the final time, again, I didn't know the layout of the safe room. So in my mind, I didn't want to get lost in the damn thing. And then, you know, right. I freaking become a big exactly. you know, casualty. Um, exactly. I knew, the, I knew the main, the main villa area. I knew the layout, layout of that because I've been in there several times. Um, so I finally, you know, I, you, I finally, you know, my first grade, uh, firefighting lessons finally kicked in and say, well, take all your shit off, get on your belly. So I finally did that. And I'm like, holy cow, I'd actually see, um, and I could actually breathe. <laughs> so yeah, wish that had kicked in a lot sooner, but you know, I'm, I'm crawling around. I mean, I'm, I'm moving, you know, I can see, I can see then that's when the counter assault happened when I was actually, you know, I probably, you know, if I'd have had another five minutes in there, you know, we probably would have, we probably would have left with them that, that night, you know, when we left, but, you know, fortunately, you know, the counter assault happened again. Nobody knew if he had got out and ran away, if he had been kidnapped or if he was in there dead somewhere, nobody, nobody had a clue because the state department guys just left or just lost total visual contact with him. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you about next. So the, the state guys, how does that happen? I mean, you know, he's got a shadow guy. He's got his body guy. How does that happen to where everyone gets separated? Is it because of the counterattacks? Is it because there's so much going on? How does that happen where they get separated from the ambo? Oh. <laughs> uh, well. I mean, if you don't want to answer it, you, you don't have to answer. I don't want to put you on the spot. <sighs> I... Well, I hate the Monday night quarterback, but I mean, the only way I can think, because you're, he's your number one package. Right. All five of those guys, I mean, Sean, he's their package too, but the ambassador is the number one package. That's like the president coming over there and staying. Right. So he, I think, panicked himself just from all the smoke and not knowing if he's going to make it out alive, that he he left them behind to go get out. Not intentionally leaving them in there, but I think he left them behind just to go get out, out the safe room window because he knew. Because a lot of times, man, these guys, they come in, these the packages, you, you might talk to them for days and days, and then when something happens, they totally forget about what you all talked about when it comes to safety and security and where the exits are. Um you know, he said he was he was going around slapping the floor. He said as he was moving. But if why would the ambassador? Because the ambassador was found in his room. If you walked, if you went on your hands and knees and you're smacking the floor, they're gonna follow that smack because they're freaked out. I guarantee you they're freaked out. Absolutely. I don't know why he would go to. That's why I think they both. He just panicked again. I'm I'm just guessing here. I'm not saying he did. I'm just guessing. And, you know, he went in and probably had all intentions to get the safe room window open. But I guess he passed out as he actually got the window open and got out. He ended up passing out. And when he woke up, he said he went back in and looking for him, but couldn't find any of them. Um, and then went up on the on the roof and stood there. Again, not the Monday night quarterback, it, but... And, Sean Smith was found pretty quick when we got there. He wasn't, he was just barely um, outside the safe room door. So 
it, it, it begs the question then, because it, it kind of touches on it in the movie and stuff. Were these guys trained properly to do this? I, I know that they called for, you know, more security and things like that. Were they trained for this? And, and once again, where do we go with this? Like, they're not going to the mall. They're not going out to dinner. This is Libya. The, again, it goes back to not what they're, if the State Department trained them to do the job, it has to go back to their previous job as well. Because a lot of those guys were never in security prior to being diplomatic, diplomatic security. And that's the other problem. I mean, they're not security first, they're diplomats first. That's why they're called diplomatic security agents. So it's, it, you know, we, you know, I mean, I weaseled my way in, but a lot of the GRS guys, again, I have eight years of special forces. That's a lot of knowledge. That's a lot of training. That's a lot of skills that's embedded in them and how to react and handle stressful situations where these guys, again, they got guys that was a, a passport investigator for the secret service. That's what he did prior to doing that job. <laughs> And, and it just you know, blows my mind when you think about it that these guys are in charge. And I'm not saying anything. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anything about that. If they're chosen for that job and they're told to do it, then that's what they do. But it makes yeah. no sense to me that we're not choosing, like you said, those GRS guys are eight years of special forces behind them. We're protecting ambassadors. These are high value targets. These are a big names. Why are we not putting your kind of guys in for that because we look too mean okay i mean i don't know um you know again we're contractors they're full-time employees um but you know they i mean look at uh brennan and over in iraq i mean he was the most protected freaking person in the world for months i think his name was brennan right the ambassador for iraq um, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. You know, like what, 2004 through like 2006 or something like that. I mean, he had like freaking a hundred freaking Blackwater guys protecting him, including and, and with freaking multiple little, little birds, uh, Blackwater guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, he hunted, he was hated. And again, we, you know, contractors kept him safe. They want to, you know, Contractors get a bad name, but we saved so many freaking lives to include military lives. Absolutely. Uh, you know, because we're the mercenaries. We do everything for money. Yeah, okay. Well, and, um, and, and, and that's crazy to me, John, that, that, that we talk about contractors like that because you're absolutely correct. You're doing things that maybe normal military can't do. And you're getting more information on the ground than, than some other units are able to do. So I, I guess to break away for a minute, why do you think that contractors have such a bad name when all the good that they've done in the world? Hollywood. Okay. Because, you know, they, instead of being a contractor, they want to call you a mercenary. You know, that's, yeah. they think you have... You know, you just, you're just fighting for money, you know. Well, I mean, you got to work. I mean, you want to get paid for doing what you do, too. You know, it's just like, that. What, how are you not a mercenary sitting behind a computer, you know, doing your computer hacking stuff? Right. You're well, doing contract, same thing. We're just out there actually physically protecting people. 
But you would agree that you're yeah. doing a job that a lot of people don't want to do. No, they, a lot of people don't. And a lot of people just can't either. Um, you know, because, you know, when I first started, you know, contracting, you know, you're hearing about these job contract jobs, you know, paying $90,000 for, you know, 60 days, 90 days, um, 30 days, you know, and they, but they were taking anybody and everybody. I mean, they were taking cooks, they were taking admin guys, they were taking maintenance guys. Um, but a lot of them never came back home. So, you know, I'd see that if you're hiring people like that, I'm not joining that group. I mean, I'm not, money isn't everything. So, well, is it because there was such know, could, a shortage that they would hire all that? Because that that's insane that you would hire people that have no business doing that kind of job. I, I understand that, you know, maybe they were behind the Powerball and they were, they were trying to get their forces up and stuff like that. But it just makes no sense. Your whole job is protection. Well, a lot of people, they just, again, they, it goes back, it, they think it's a game. Uh, it goes back to like playing Xbox. Because one of, there's a couple guys, again, I worked with and they went, you know, they got hired to go up and, uh, I can't remember, I think it was um, Custer's Battle or something like that, I think is what one of them was. Again, you know, he's like, hey, man, we can go up here and do this gig for 60 days. It's $90,000. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, what are you going in with? What do you have? And I'm looking at the guy like, dude, you, do you, do you, you know, do you even know how to shoot a machine gun? You know how to uh, do any of that? He's like, well, no, they're going to teach you how to do it. I'm like, dude, you don't even know how to do it. You want to go and take a freaking two-week course and go up there and do – no, you're stupid. He didn't make it back. He – uh him and his whole, like, it was these eight guys, they were in Suburbans, they got hit, and they jumped out on the wrong side of the vehicle. They jumped out on the attack side versus the opposite side. Again, that just goes back to training and, and knowing your surroundings before you get right. out. And, and they all got whacked. And so, so going going back into that night, as, as you look for uh, the ambassador and everything, you... Uh, you guys moved back to your actual compound, correct? Is there anything else of, of major importance that happens before you head back? Because the State Department guys have already headed out and, and then, oh, by the way, got lost on their way back. Is there, anything of, is there anything of importance that happened to you guys before you get back to the compound? Is anything else kind of changing the, uh, the, the battlefield for you as you're moving back? Yeah, so initially when we went out there, I had a grenade launcher, and then we went back. I didn't have a grenade launcher. And, okay. Uh, of course, if you watch, if you watch the movie, you think I lost a grenade launcher. But if you read the book, you know the grenade launcher was actually placed in a vehicle that we had to leave behind because it was surrounded by militiamen. Again, we had no idea who they were. Instead of risking our lives, you know, we had all of all the whole GRS team now in one vehicle, plus um, um, Sean Smith's body. Mm-hmm. You know, versus, you know, taking the risk of getting that vehicle or all of us making it back, we decided to make it back. And so we go back to that Hollywood thing. Does that, does that piss you off when you see stuff like that? Oh God, it pissed me off. Yeah. I wasn't happy about that at all. Cause again, I know how people look at things. They don't, they're too lazy to read a book and I don't want to say lazy. If they don't have time, I'll say they don't have time to read a book. Mm-hmm. So again, Everywhere I go, it's like, dude, how did you lose the thumper? Like, I didn't lose the thumper. 
Well, and, and because in the movie they they make it look to where you like tripped and dropped it, and that's nowhere near the truth. No, not even close. For me, being a two or three gunner in the Marine Corps, I know the force. You know the force multiplier that thing gives you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd rather shove it down my pants and freaking lose it. But again, I, you never know what's going to happen, and I had no way to carry that with the machine gun and my M4, and so I had to I put it back in the vehicle where I knew it'd be secured. And then, of course, yeah, you know, we never went back to the vehicle. So you guys leave. You head back to your compound. You get back to your compound. Um, let's talk about what happens as soon as you step foot on the compound again, are you guys having trouble with the politics of it? Or are you getting right to work? Nah, there was no politics involved with us while we were there. Yeah. We just, we just got focused back on our job and went mm-hmm. to our fighting waiting for uh, pretty much uh, the third assault on us. And so what's going through your mind as you're waiting on that? Uh, really just, you know, trying to see where everybody was at, make sure, you know, I knew, I, I just want to know where everybody was. I want to know where everybody was at. I didn't have to, but, you know, just knowing all the locations were, cause we had four locals that were with us, you know, that were, you know, that were our guards I had two of them and, you know, just going over my, you know, my equipment, you know, doing a, cause I didn't no, I did no, I did the mag change over there. Um, and getting uh, the the locals uh, linked up with the uh, IR chem lights because uh, the drone was up above up above us. I want to be able to make sure they could identify every one of us that was friendly. Um, so you know, just just that stuff was going on. So, how important or how worthless was that drone overhead? It was worthless. Want to go it into that a little bit? I I just want to get your thoughts on it. The, the, because we didn't have, since we didn't have direct, direct, uh, comms with the drone, they would tell us in the middle of a firefight that you got people moving up on your position. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess late news is better than no news. I don't know. Uh, and so, so, so the first time we're going, we're in the middle of a firefight, we're going, shit, there's more coming. <laughs> So, all right, here we go. So, I mean, but a lot of people don't realize really the whole entire time it was only, well, the the two major firefights, it was only four guys that was defending the compound because nobody else could shoot. It was just Elf, Oz, Tonto, and Boone. And so, once again, we go back to, of course, you guys are asking for support. You're asking for a, a Spectre gunship or something to come over, get a flyby, scare them, do something. Nothing. Nope. We got a 20-minute delayed drone. Well, and, and, and that's the whole thing. And there's no doubt in my mind that whatever's happening in the war room over here while you're over there, they're seeing what's going on with that drone. They know how dire the situation is. Why no support? You know, that... The only thing I can think of is because there's a Clinton up there in office and they didn't want another Black Hawk Down situation. It's the only thing I can think of. But but if that's what they're thinking, it goes back to the, you know, the whole thing I was talking about earlier that they didn't, they had no clue of the local populace and their attitude towards this. Not a clue. 
let's go into that a little bit because I talked to uh, Brad Thomas a couple weeks ago. He was actually in. Uh, he was actually a ranger on the ground in Black Hawk Down. What do you mean they didn't want another Black Hawk Down? Oh, they were probably afraid that something was going to get shot down and the locals would, you know, or we'd have to spend hours going there and try to rescue them or the locals would, you know, drag them through the street or, or do something like that where if they knew anything about them, that would never would have happened. And I think the locals, you know, would have, if something would have got shot down, actually went and helped and protected whoever was still alive mm-hmm. and actually probably covered the bodies. I mean, look what happened to Ambassador Stevens. You know, a neighbor spotted they took him to the hospital. Had. Yeah. Took him in his car to the hospital. They didn't drag him through the street. They didn't do anything horrible. They didn't mutilate him. They didn't rape him. They didn't torture him. They took him to the hospital. So, again, they had no clue. I mean, the reason why I'm saying this also is because of the Marine, because uh, of the, the Marine uh, um, fast, the uh, fast platoon that was supposed to come in. They made them mm. change in uniform like three freaking times because they were afraid they were going to cause an incident with the local populace. That just tells me they had no clue what was really going on in that town whatsoever. For her, I think it was just a dog and pony show for her to run for president. She's thinking it was going to be perfect. So she didn't really give a crap really about Libya itself as a, as a whole. She just crap if it was successful or not. Because again, if they knew anything about the, the the major populace there, I mean, hell, we were going fishing out there. Again, because we want to go with the locals, and we were we, locals were coming up and helping us learn how to fish in their freaking waters. They're like coming up to you, dummies. No, you got to use this. No, you dummies, you don't fish here. You fish over here. And I guess this goes back to the entire point of that station chief and his guys and having the agency there is to know what's going on, the intel. And so I just wonder, where is the breakdown? Is it on the ground there? Is it back here? Is it in between? Is there too many levels? Where is the breakdown? You have an entire agency set there to find out everything they would need to know. You would think. (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't know where the big breakdown is, but I know our information was getting sent over SATCOM. So I know they were hearing it because uh, mm-hmm. we had people in other countries. I was telling us they're listening to our calls for Spectre gunship and stuff like that. Um, but again, you know, yeah, you know, Sigonella is right there. Yeah, the 24th Mew was just a few hours away. Yeah, the USF Dunham just a couple miles off the coast. He had the whole entire air base, you know, military military air base right up, you know, in Italy. <clears throat> Sorry, in Italy and. Uh, yeah, it's for them to say that there's no assets available. Man, we had civ companies. We there's so much stuff that was around there it wasn't even funny. I know DOD lied to Congress. Um, you know, they said the 24th Mew was nowhere near it. I've talked to so many Marines, different locations, different times, and they tell me I don't even tell them anything. They tell me. I said, yeah, you know, where I was on the 24th Mew, we were right there in the Met. According to according to what DOD told Congress, they were nowhere even near us. That's ten thousand freaking Marines on that freaking aircraft carrier. So, do you think it's because because th- this is the only thing I can think of, and it goes back to what you were talking about about contractors. Is it because it was contractors there, and it was because it was CIA people that they're not gonna put as much 
I guess the only word to use is effort into what's going on. Is, is that why? I would say yes, if the ambassador wasn't involved. But the fact they have a United States ambassador, which is a direct representative of the president of the United States, that's where my why is. Because you would, I mean, if the if that was if he's a direct representative of the president, you'd be sending hell and earth to save the president. Why not the U.S. ambassador? Right. So again, it doesn't. If it was just us, I wouldn't expect it anything, anyways. I've been in situations like that where, like, oh, here we are. Um, but the fact that you have a U.S. ambassador involved. Well, and you're saying that. Think about this. So he's the first ambassador killed since 1979. Uh, when Adolf Dubs was killed. Um, so look at that span of time. So it shows you what you're saying, how important that ambassador is to keep them safe, to keep them doing what they're doing. And it just seems like a complete breakdown. A perfect storm is going on. I mean, the ambassador in France has assigned security detail to him. I mean, he had more protection than Ambassador Stevens did. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. So as we move on through the night, uh, I want to talk about the mortar attack. Um, can you walk us through it now? I know that you're on Tower 3. So, um, yeah, it was Tower 3, and, uh, you know, just before the first mortar hit, you know, we hear a, a thump, or kind of what, uh, if you go to a batting cage, you hear a, or a, you know, a tennis racket place and they got the ball launcher that's kind of what a mortar sounds like from a distance when they're hanging them right when they hang them and drop them in yeah when you hear the launch it's just like yeah. a boom. um so that's kind of what i heard and i was getting ready to key the radio tonto actually keyed before me and he kind of said hey mortars um i'm getting ready to key it and I'm, again i was like yeah i think i heard mortars too when the first one hits and it hit uh just you know to the uh say to the northeast, trying to remember the map, to the uh, northwest, sorry, the northwest uh, side, just outside the compound of, uh, the, of the command post. And at the same time, a RPG hit the back wall and small arms fire opened up. So it was the, you know, the final one was a coordinated attack with the mortars and small arms, which, you know, it's, you know, it takes a little bit of training to do that. You just can't whip a couple guys up and do it. And then I heard another, another launch you know, gunfire's going off. That one hits, you know, probably, they probably dropped a good 75 yards, maybe 50 yards, and, you know, and 20 feet, and that ended up hitting the top of the back wall, probably about 20 feet from the uh, from the command building. And when that one hit the top of the wall, actually hit, you know, send shrapnel everywhere and end up getting uh, Dave Ubin, the State Department guy, took a bunch of shrapnel to the forehead uh, he dropped out out of the fight, and then I heard another one. And then, from my viewpoint, since I was on the uh, the east side corner, it looked like the mortars were being walked down towards me. And so I was thinking it's going to be okay. That one hit there. That one hit here. The next one's going to be on the inside, a lot closer to me. So I jumped off the tower and started moving back. Um, and but as I got back towards the gym, just at the corner, the, the third round hit the top of, of the of building three, which is our command post, uh, top of building three. And immediately, obviously, all gunfire just, just ceased. Um, the building actually got hit a total of three times. And no matter how much I think about it, I only remember seeing it getting hit by one. Um, 
So I'm up on the, I get on the radio and say, Hey, you guys up on building three, you all good. The team leader inside the building gets on the radio and said, yeah, we're all fine in here. I get back on the radio, tell them to shut up and talk about the guys on top of the building. Uh, Jack, he's over on uh, building four. And I mean, it's, they're pretty close together. So you can pretty much see it, you know, across the entire roof, even, even with the parapet, you know, being right there or the, or the wall, I should say the three, he's got three foot wall around all the buildings on the top. Um, And he just gets on a raise and Hey, Tig, I got no movement whatsoever. Um, So I immediately ran over, got up, you know, jumped over uh, the wall. And the first guy I see is Dave Ubin. He's, you know, just leaned up against the wall. He's got a pistol in his right hand. Thank God he didn't shoot me. Um, but, you know, once I jumped over, I immediately saw somebody. I just started talking. Um, but his uh, left hand, left leg was almost completely severed off. His, uh, I mean, his, his, you know, pretty much from mid-shin, his leg was just kicked up towards his crotch. Um, his left arm was just completely dangling there and, you know, I just go through my bag, get uh, a couple of tourniquets, you know, throw it up on his leg, one on his arm. Obviously, I had to disarm him first. Um, and I just remember, you know, just trying, just talking with him. And, you know, we did a we did a drill just prior to the ambassador coming there with him, you know, doing our medical training, you know, what we would do on, a, you know, if uh, we had a an active shooter on our compound. But, you know, we when we teach it, when we're doing, you know, first day, we have to do a tourniquet. We always, you know, when you put it on, you always got to tell yourself, uh, uh, think, sink it deep, sink it deep. Cause you want the tourniquet as deep as possible. So up into the growing as possible right. and as deep armpit as possible. So I just remember he's like, man, get it deep, man. Sink it deep, sink it deep. And I'm like, dude, I'm just as deep as I can go. It's not going anymore. You know? So he said, just kept saying that. And, you know, again, just still talking with them and, I remember getting up to go turn and walk away to go help the other guys. Hey man, I need my gun back. I was like, uh, crap. You know, hey, you know, you're taught. You know, you don't give somebody back their weapon when they got their bell rung. You know, especially by that. And absolutely, I'm a slow marine, so you know, I gave him back his gun. But you know, I unloaded it first, and you know, in his condition, I was ninety nine point nine percent sure he wasn't gonna be able to reload that damn thing, anyways. Um, and it took me, it, I had to struggle to rack it because I think it took some shrapnel anyways. Um, but, you know, I just, you know, dropped the mag, make sure the round was out and I just handed it back to him. Because to me, I wanted to do whatever I could to make him comfortable to, and focus on not put him into shock. So at least now he felt like he could still be participating in something. Um, because, you know, I know I figured the guys were going to come up pretty quick, um, but. So I treated him, went over, uh, got Oz, you know, he, uh, pretty much the same thing, but I believe it was, it was, uh, I think it was his right arm that was, uh, he got, he got shrapnel there and it wasn't definitely wasn't as bad as Dave Uvin, but it was, you know, he had no function of it and stuff. He was kind of playing with it, you know, shaking it up and down and hey, dude, you need to quit playing with it. You're going to make it worse. He's like, yeah, but check this out. I'm like, dude, stop playing with it. You know, I feel like I'm your mom right now. <laughs> you know, so he, but he hadn't had a tourniquet out. I grabbed the tourniquet, put it on him, and uh, you know, stood him up and I said, Hey, man, can you walk to the ladder by yourself? And you know, I'm we're still, I'm still the only guy that's up there at this time. And he goes, He goes, Yeah, I guess I got no choice. But I kind of, you know, I hold on to him for a little bit, you know, just to make sure he doesn't just fall over and crack his head or something stupid. And you know, he stumbled a little bit like a drunk guy, but it wasn't too bad. So I let him go. 
then uh, immediately went down to the third guy, which was uh, Ron, and rolled him over, checked for a pulse. There's no pulse. Um, do a thing called look, listen, feel. So I had to rip off his body armor, you know, take his shirt, pull his shirt up, and, you know, put my ear down to his mouth, trying to hear if he's breathing, uh, see if I can feel a breath, and then look down his chest and see if there's any movement. I didn't, I couldn't really see anything because, again, I wasn't breaking light discipline yet because I'm thinking of a spotter. We can go on that after I, after this. So during this time, I wasn't really thinking. So, you know, by the time that happened, I was like, well, I got to figure out if he's really still alive or not. So I finally broke the light discipline. I uh, got the flashlight out, you know, checked his pupil. There's zero dilation whatsoever. So immediately get on the radio because Oz, by now, he was actually getting down the uh, the ladder. And, you know, again, I don't know the timing of it, but because uh, Rome was our medic. So I had to get on the radio and let everybody know that, hey, we just lost Rome. He's gone. Um, because I knew the moment they saw Oz, they were going to be screaming on the radio for Roan. So, and actually, one guy, one of the case officers did start doing Finally, somebody got on the radio and said, dude, Roan's not here no more. They finally shut him up. But um, went over to the, the fourth guy and rolled him over and did the same thing, getting no pupil dilation. Uh, by this time, the Tripley team had gone up on the roof, and you know, really, the only thing that the Tripoli team really did, I thought, was kind of pretty cool, was the we had this the worked some workout straps that we used for the the rings for CrossFit. They built a had pretty much a human backpack so they can get Dave Ubin off the roof. And you know, this this guy, he's you know, like freaking six four, two hundred sixty something pounds, so he's not a small guy at all. These are what D boys uh, that are up there with you now. Yeah. Yep. And so they, so they go, you know, they do that and they get them off, you know, they get them off the roof. I'm up there, you know, I, I go collect all the weapons that are, you know, pretty much scattered across the roof, get them all collected up, went back over to Rome, knelt down, said a prayer over him, went over to Bob, knelt down, said a prayer over him, then, then came down and got off the roof. And, you know, and that was pretty much it for the, the mortars. And that was that was the last and final attack when the mortars came in. Why? I don't know. I don't know why it actually ended. Why the mortars? Because the mortars kept coming. We'd have been screwed. Um, it's amazing. It didn't I, collapse that building. So I was just about to talk about that. So the only thing I can think of, because I was looking at the, the picture of where the, the mortar hole is up on the outside you can see where it's kind of right by that window. And I think the, the mortars that other hit are kind of shifted over just a little bit. And the, the supporting walls, they're not like our walls in America. They're like, a, they're like a foot wide concrete wall. They're not, they're not two by fours or four or two right. by six solid concrete, about a foot wide. And I think those mortars hit exactly those other two mortars hit exactly on that support wall. That's the only thing that saved that building from collapsing. It, it's amazing that that happened because I think the same thing as you, uh, they were walking them in just trying yeah. to hit. I think they were trying to go maybe either the corners or dead center of the building. They hit, I mean, again, so the, the attack lasted. So they're going off the flashes and the cameras is what they're going off of. Okay. First lap from the first flash to the final flash was a minute and 14 seconds. They launched five mortars and three of the five hit their target. So that has to be, I mean, one, it's got to be multiple mortars. 
and maybe not a ton, but multiple mortars. And that, that has to be, uh, paced off or close to it, or that, that takes coordination. And then the coordinate with small arms fire. Right. But again, I mean, there's, there's definitely a spotter. So, so as what, a, as people don't know is what a spotter does, he sees where a splash is and a splash is the impact of the round. And then he calls back to the, to the mortar team and he's telling them to, you know, go left 50 feet, drop 10 feet. Yep. That's what it does. And it usually happens extremely quick and the spotter has to be really quick and really good. Yeah. He's just ad dropping on them, ad drop right, left and, and moving as fast as he can. Do you agree? Or do you think that there were multiple mortars or do you think it was one tube? I think it was one tube. Cause I think once, once they had the, the first two came really quick. Mm-hmm really quick um and again it was it was enough for my ears to readjust and hear all you know i heard all three of the launches so it wasn't like back to back so they they were taking their time and you know the mortar again you know i guess i mean you can divide a minute 14 by five and figure out how you know how long it took them to launch each mortar right Uh, but still it doesn't you know that one hits you know, at 15 seconds in the air, that's, you know, third one hits. I think one that, you know, they could have made that adjustment because I mean, where it hit, all they had to do was just drop and fire for effect. Because yeah. every time you launch the mortar, it drops because if the mortar's facing this way, every time it, it's going to, it's, it's going to reduce the, the length of it anyways. It's always going to drop because of the, the plate pushes down. Moving, the yeah. So it was just a natural drop because it was, yeah. So. The only reason I was thinking multiples was because they're changing the charge on it, on the mortar, and, and you know, uh, just where they're going to put it and stuff is what I'm thinking. Yeah, but again, a good mortar team, I mean, it doesn't take True. a second to change the charge. True. And it could have been better if they had the right charge, just in that the right angle. Absolutely. Um, so all this, it, it ends... And there's been stuff that was said about, um, and I want to talk about it, and if it bothers you, I don't want to go into it too much, but um, how the D-Boys remove the bodies. Um, that's been, I don't want to say a point of contention, but it, it seems to me as they were expediting it, but there could have been maybe a better way. There's no reason to expedite it. So it's what they did. They put, okay. them, they put them on top of the wall, and they, you know, rolled them off. Just, you know, again, down below, it's just, you know, concrete you know, more of a slab. So when, uh, when Roan hit, he was the first one to get dumped. Um, you know, you know, I'm an, I'm, I'm down there next to him. And because I, I didn't go up on the roof with him, I went to the back and I'm like, Hey, pull security down here. I'm looking okay. like pull security on. Cause I can't see anything. I got a freaking, you know, 15 foot wall here and I got a 15 foot wall in front of me, but I'm like, whatever. So I'm thinking, you know, again, they're going to either carry him down, they're going to lower him, they're going to do something. Because, again, we had time. There's 300, there's a 300, you know, man militia that was coming. Um, they weren't there yet. And we knew they were coming. You know, we had, uh, before we walked back there, I told them, hey, we got this, uh, a, a strap that we used to pull the tire on because we wrapped it around our body and we pull it. So again, you know, if, if they slipped out of that, they slipped out of that. But again, at least you're trying to lower them in dignity and, you know, right. and figure what, you know, because it's always good to know how people die. Uh, but if you dump somebody from that far and they end up, I mean, I'm pretty sure both of them, they, both of them smacked their heads. Cause I heard both, you know, both their heads hit. Um, and um, Bub actually rolled into the bush and sliced open his, you know, his gut. 
Um, that was an injury that, you know, was probably marked down, but wasn't from the mortar attack it was because they dumped him off the roof. And again, you're looking, you know, 20 foot drop. Yeah. You know? And and it's all concrete and marble, correct? Yep. To sustain just from that internally, even though they're already gone. Right. But again, it's all about, you know, we were supposed to respect our brothers in any way possible. Now I get it. If we're under combat, we're under freaking attack and we got to get out of there and we want to bring them by all means do it out of there. Um, But again, you wouldn't dump them off the back and you dump them off the front where we got to go. Cause you know, but again, we didn't, we had plenty of time. We had a 300 man freaking militia coming with gun trucks. Yeah. Again, if, if they slip out, they slip out, but at least we tried, but they didn't even want to try. That's what pisses me off. And I think it's completely disrespectful. And the fact that they got the second highest honor in the U.S. military for that, it's fucking bullshit. Well, let's talk about that. Because I, I, I know that, like I said, the, the contention that happens with that, there are people that thought it was completely disrespectful. There were others talking about those guys that thought that they did the right thing. What do you do when this happens? I mean, what, because we weren't there, so we don't know. So what happens as that, as you see that happening? Again, we had all the time in the world. Right. Thing. We were not under fire. You know, in their, in their awards, they said they went up on the roof under fire. There was no freaking fire. I was the first one up on the roof. The fire had stopped. There's no more gunfire. Um, you know, it, and, and again, that's the only thing that they did the whole entire night was those really those two things they got dave ubin dave ubin off the roof and they pretty much you know, they rolled bub and and roan off the roof you know because the grs guys treated all the wounded in, on the inside well they get they, they get the second highest medal you know in, in the military for for that it's just but again it's all it's all about who you know and how somebody writes something up to make you look too well, I think there's some contention with that with uh, the station chief too correct he got a pretty high honor too they got pretty much the Congressional Medal of Honor, the the uh, the the country team lead, our team leader, and the station station chief all got the Intel Star. Which actually, military, if you get that, you can wear it on the uniform. And what do you guys walk away with? Uh, we got a made up uh, medal that they just made up. That I day wanted to and... see how you would describe this. <laughs> <laughs> just give you, you know, they gave it to the cook, they gave it to the maintenance guy, you know, hell, they probably gave it to the linguist though. So. Which actually the linguist did a lot more than the chief of base or the team leader did. And we go back to the question, is it because you're contractors? Mm, yeah, that's the only reason why, because we're contractors. I've known, I mean, I've known contractors who've gotten the Intel star and I've even talked to them and they said, man, we did, you did 10 times more than we ever did. It, it almost seems to me in hearing everything from you that was on the ground, it almost seems like, to certain people that you know you had mentioned they didn't want another black hawk down but this this almost seems like it was a it was a punch in the face a punch in the face but i'm talking about the people back here and how they treated you guys and how they treated the situation in general it almost seems like it was i guess the word is an annoyance instead of what it really was well it's because the they met a political when it, it shouldn't have been political uh, and when we people like, well, you know, your book is this, your book is that. It's like, well, you haven't read the book. Like, well, no, because it's going to talk about this. And like, actually, no, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with politics. Because the news and the politicians made the whole whole incident uh, political. 
especially when they started saying it was over a, a video and they go and arrest a guy and saying it was a protest, this and that. They made a political. We never made a political. No, we just told the truth. And but because of that, you know, obviously, you know, 50 percent of the people actually vote and pay attention in this country don't like us. It's a shame. So that that brings us to the next point that I want to talk about with you is the politics that are going on right now, because you you mentioned that. And and I I was talking the other day and this is what I said. I said in uh, in Dallas is where we're based out of. If you have to board up the entire downtown of Dallas to have a presidential election, something has gone wrong. Something very fundamental has gone wrong. And so I wonder, where do we take the left when we should have taken the right? Because I, I feel, and I don't mean that in left and right terms. I mean, <laughs> I mean really, like, in your ideas, because I've read about how you feel about this kind of stuff, where do we take the wrong turn our school systems we allowed uh liberals to get in there and start teaching them well start indoctrinating our kids instead of teaching them um i think you know especially in colleges because statistically they say like 90 percent of the kids that come out of high school are very pro-american very patriotic but 80 percent when they get out of college hate this country so again it goes back to our education system that's where we failed that's where we you know, we should have made the right, but we made the left. Um, and it's intended that way. <laughs> uh, the left controlled their control of the schools. I mean, we have a known communist party member that's part of the board, the, the board of education in Denver. And nobody's in an uproar about it. A member of the communist party. Yep. The Denver communist party member, um, his name's Tay Anderson, is part of the school board up in Denver. So what do you think is going to start happening in, in the high school and, and elementary school and junior high school stuff now? That's yeah. the direction this is going, and we're not, we're not in freaking uproar about it. This dude should be hung. I mean, he's proud. He, I mean, he came out and said, I'm a proud member of the Denver Communist Party. And people are cheering him for it. They're congratulating and I, him. And I just don't get that, I, especially in America. It is... The Communist Party, socialism, is the exact opposite of everything that goes on in America. It's the exact opposite. Yep. Well, you know, we're, we're not, we're, we're fighting an insurgency. We really are. I mean, it's, you know, the BLM was just a puppet. Antifa was, you know, pretty much BLM was Antifa's puppet. And, and Antifa's a, you know, a puppet of, a, now I forgot the name of it, um, another big organization. But again, you have, you know, people, people want to laugh, they want to say it's conspiracy, but you know, you had China's involved in it. You had Russia's involved in it. The Muslim Brotherhood is involved with it. Hamas is involved with it. It's not just what people think it is and it's growing. It's not going to get smaller. I mean, they're, they're up in Denver after uh, the presidential election saying, you know, uh, what is it? No, something, no borders, no USA. I mean, they're already calling for the complete destruction, dismantling of America. That that is going on in Portland too. So in Portland, they're saying now, "Fuck Trump, fuck Biden, death to America." I've been saying it for a while, man. They don't care what political affiliation you are. When they start attacking Democrats, and they especially the the two liberal freaking lawyers, they start attacking them right there. You should have told everybody it has nothing to do with the political agenda. There's no party involved. It, they just it's it's an outside movement. And, you know, and we're doing it from the inside. And so stuff you say in saying what you just said, 
makes people nervous, makes people say, that's a conspiracy theory, you're crazy. You, there, there's a ton of things that people say. How do you counter those arguments? Prove me wrong. Yeah, I, I guess that's a way to do it. Prove me wrong. Prove me that one thing that I've said is not true. I don't, you know, I just, I just, again, I don't, I don't watch CNN. I don't watch InfoWars. I don't really watch right. Fox. I just, you know, I just go from what I've learned reading, reading the, reading my freaking books in the Marine Corps. You know, I did a lot of counter, you know, a, tower, a lot of terrorism freaking reading. And, you know, our biggest threat really is if, and when China and freaking Iran and Russia come together. And people don't think that's going to happen. It'll, it'll happen. It's probably going to happen now because we're at such a weak point. You know, they're growing in power. And so do you think with with everything that's going on with the election, um, I, I, I'm guessing I know how you feel about it. But once we if if we do get uh, the 46th in, what are some concerns that you have? I, I know I know that what you're saying with China and Russia and, and things like that. But we're talking about going back into the Paris Accords. We're talking about uh, there's a bunch of different things that are going to change supposedly day one. What are other concerns that people may not be thinking of? Food's going to go up. Gas is going to go up. Your income's going to go down because everything's going to go up. And, you know, it's going to look like Venezuela. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the destruction of the country because the dude only lasts four years. Right. And, you know, and I honestly, I don't think it's going to last that long. I think they're going to pull the 25, 25th Amendment on him. I mean, we have we have senators, we have congressmen that, that are that are talking out about this country, a country that they're supposed to, in all terms, represent. And they talk about it. You have AOC, you have Omar, you have a lot of people that are supposedly in this government that are talking about it. And yet it doesn't change in the voting. They, they win their elections. They do. So what is going on? And we see in this election now, whatever happened in it, we don't know yet. It's, it's not over yet. As, as far as everyone can tell, where have we gone to where the voting doesn't change these things? Because there's a lot of people that want to save this country that, that are, you know, never served a day in the military, but they're, they're patriotic. They love this country. So what has happened to where all we hear is the squeaky wheel anymore? I don't, I don't really know the answer. Um, Again, not even half the country voted for one, um, which is pretty sad. So not even half the country knows what's going on, uh, which is kind of good. It means they're living a comfy life. But when shit hits the fan, you got to figure out what side are they going to go to. I mean, who's who's gonna, who's going to have the best the best sales pitch? Um, and right now, the Communist Party has got the best sell pitch because it's easier. It's the easiest one to follow. It's the one that gives you more free stuff. And the sad point is it goes back to, you know, where we went wrong is their education system. You know, people now, I mean, you get participation trophies, you get, you know, timeout rooms or stress rooms or whatever rooms. Um, And we made a, you know, we pussified our country instead of, you know, making it stronger. We made it weaker by by allowing that to happen. We were talking about uh, probably a week or two ago about uh, stress cards. Uh, in the military, stress cards. It's stupid. Well, yeah, and and the point that we brought up with is that's the exact opposite group that you should be giving stress cards to. You should be yeah. living in a world of stress because you are the next war fighters. 
Yeah, especially boot camps where you want to stress the shit out of them and make them quit. I think that's our biggest problem. We don't allow the fucking week to quit. We allow them to, we push them through, which is destroys. Then you have these bull bird dogs, you know, like that, that, you know, come in and destroy their, our infrastructure of the military or the, or the Mannings that come in and destroy it. Cause I guarantee you, they'd rather let them pass boot camp because they need the numbers. We don't need, if you got the, if you got quality people, you don't need numbers, you know? True. I mean, look, look. Look at Japan. They they tried it with numbers. We whooped their ass. Look at you know Germany. They tried it with numbers. We whooped their ass. It's not always about numbers. It's about the quality and the training that you get. Again, I don't want to sound conspiracy theory, but I think the only way the way this country is going and the things that you know I've been again I just don't try to read one thing, but it's again it's an outside influence, you know. And I think there's a lot more Islamic push to this than people believe. Okay. Do you want to, you want to go further about that? Well, just a lot of the, uh, like a couple of the BLM, like high considered BLM members that are here. They're, you know, the one that I talked to in the Springs, the Duke could barely speak English. You know, we, we have these protests going on all over the country. Like, like you just mentioned uh, about Denver, about Portland. Um, we're seeing them gain strength though. And, well, and that's, that is unsettling to a lot of people. What's interesting to me, though, is as upsetting or as unsettling or however you want to say it, it is to people, people still seem to want to stay quiet about it. You have your, you have your some people that want to talk out, but you have that, I guess you would use the word silent majority. And that's what's going to destroy the country before you know, we can get out of it because the people are being silent. You know, there's one thing I got to, there, there's like five different, factions that are up there that are out here that are, that are that are on the left and internally they fight with each other but externally they stand together okay the problem the problem with the people on the right we fight internally and we fight externally we barely ever unite and stand together well and they say They're that's really, the fastest way to win a war you have to have a common enemy yeah we have one but we still fight with each other i mean i'm seeing it with uh with these protests or whatever, these protest organizers, like, well, no, I need to have mine. I need to, I need to have this one. I need to do this one. Instead of all of them that, that can actually get thousands of people, they won't freaking talk to each other. Say, hey, let's do one big movement. You use the list. We'll use it. Let's bring them all together. It's like, they got to maintain their own list. I think it's you see that in governments, too, where you have city councils or boards or whatever that each person that sits on it has, I guess, their own agenda is what you would say. Yeah, and it's you know it goes back to even dealing with these non some nonprofits I deal with you know instead of them working together they fight for the for every dollar it's like you know if you actually work together you probably gain even more money but you know people just on on the right they just fight we tear each other apart so easily and so fast you know like I'm I'm standing up an organization um, United American Defense Force okay. I had other before, before I even, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much operational now, but before I was even close to being operational, they were already trying to tear me down, you know, saying, you know, he don't, you know, this, they're completely unorganized, you know, they're, they don't know what they're doing, uh, you know, just constantly just trying to get people not to join. And, you know, I'm like, you guys are freaking stupid because you guys can't win this war by yourself. You know, I'm doing something that's totally different, something that you can't do, you don't know how to do, and you don't have the capabilities to do, you know, and, and it's, and again, I'm not trying to take your guys. I'm not trying to, 
I just wanted, you know, form something that anybody and everybody can join because a lot of these other groups and they're very picky. They're doing this, they're doing that. You know, I'm pretty sure I got a, you know, some douchebag Antifa BLM people that are in the group. I really don't care. It's not going to benefit them at all. Um, unless they, you know, come, they want to start doing the training, but we'll find out who they are. And guess what? When I will cut you out, but just to join, to think you're going to gain information on what we're doing. You ain't cause I'm very public on what we're doing, how we're doing it. Right. So at all, but you know, trying to get these groups to come out and actually defend and protect these other, you know, our, the protesters, the people that are actually, you know, out there trying to make a difference for our country, you know, out there, you know, to protect them because they're just the left. They're just coming in and starting to beat the shit out of people. I mean, it happens all the time. So I'm standing up the group to, to start defending and protecting them along with the businesses and stuff, you know, so they ain't getting destroyed and trying to get these other, you know, 3% militia groups to stand up alongside you. It's almost impossible, you know. It, so do you once again feel like, uh, I guess this would kind of be going back to uh, Benghazi. <laughs> I mean, uh, you're looking for the support. You're looking for things to help protect businesses, people that are that are living their rights, protesting, because there's no problem with protesting. Where you get sideways of it is when you burn down a building because you're protesting. That's not protesting. That was never, that was never meant to be part of protesting. It was never meant to be any of those things. And so do you feel like you're kind of, uh, you know, yelling into the wind again? I don't care. Lisa, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and, and say, well, you know, I had a chance to do something, but I, I couldn't do it because I thought I was going to stand alone. I'd rather right. stand alone hell than not do anything at all, you know, but I'm not, I mean, I got, you know, I got some really good volunteers because it's all volunteer. I got right. really good volunteers on the board to help helping this thing grow. Again, there's people that had no clue, of, you know, no military, no law enforcement, no nothing. They're coming on board because, again, they want to defend their country. They see the direction it's going. They feel it. And they just see the hate from the left. And again, when you're, I mean, we're out there, well, just this weekend and freaking I got struck by a car, you know. And, you know, because I was walking and they did an illegal U-turn at a red light. And, again, a Biden, you know, uh, a supporter. You know, they're just, you know, being douchebags as we're out there. You know, they're flipping us off, yelling. He's acting like he's going to jump out of the car and try to fight people. And, you know, and I was uh, walking with my dog. We are going from the center uh, island to the other street. Of course, you know, the light turns red. I start walking. They freaking whoop around and, you know, got hit. Uh, by the front bumper, I smacked his, you know, the hood of his car, freaking pulled off and hit me again. I smacked his windshield and he's going to be definitely needing a windshield. But again, they're just freaking violent, man. Any chance they can get to freaking do any damage, they're going to do it. Um, but, you know, they, you know, I, I got some, you know, some lacerations on my leg from it, but nothing that's going to stop me. Um, but the other side, man, they're just over, you know, there was a little bit on both sides, but for the most part, you know, the Biden ones, they're just driving by flipping you off saying, you know, you know, fuck you, fuck this, you know, and the, and the counter protests, they're showing up with their anti-American sign. And we're just like, you know, they're literally, they just hate this country. So one of them, the BLM guy that I was telling you about walking up and saying, well, let's have a dialogue. Let's have a dialogue. And I was like, okay, but do you want to have a dialogue in the middle of the street? I'm like, no, we're not doing dialogue in the middle of the street. 
So my organization actually pushed the the Trump supporters, well, actually not Trump supporters, the uh, Stop the Steal uh, supporters, pushed them to the other side of the street completely, then, you know, walked over to one of the guys he wanted to have a dialogue with, say, hey, you want to have a dialogue, go over the middle, walk back over to him, said, all right, you know, so I called him out on it, said, all right, let's go have a dialogue. Nope, no dialogue. He didn't want to do it no more. Again, totally freaking called him out. And the funny thing is, I don't want to say funny things, but the women are the worst. They are the biggest agitators ever. The dudes are, for the most part, calm. The women are the ones that are antagonizing and making it worse. So where do we, to to kind of wrap this up, because I think I've kept you for long enough. The first <laughs> question of it is, is there an answer? That's above my pay grade, but I would say the biggest answer is start standing up. Start you know, getting organized, getting ready because they're coming to your neighborhood. I mean, I just posted another one where a video on my Instagram that, you know, they're coming to the neighborhoods and the dude's on the porch saying, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Biden supporter. And they're in there. I don't care who the hell you are, who you support. That's from their mouths. Again, it's on and it's posted. You can go freaking look at it. Um, It's my, you know, I, well, I lost my, my, uh, original uh, Instagram account over a hundred thousand followers. But again, that's the other thing, you know, we're fighting the tech system. They're, you know, they're shutting down anybody that stands up in their way. Well, and you're, you're on a couple different, um, kind of newer, uh, social media platforms. Well, I'm on one newer, newer one. I'm on the parlor. Right. Um, So. so the second part to that question is, uh, where do we go from here with this? we do we how do we come like you said the guy says let's have a dialogue how do we start having those dialogues because that's the only way that's going to fix it no it is but again that they don't want dialogue they claim they do but that right there i mean broad daylight he asked a couple times i say fine i moved everybody and it was just going to be them two having dialogue again called them out right there publicly no he didn't want to do it so, but I mean, you have to, but a lot of the sad thing is there's a lot of things that they're doing that majority of us don't disagree with is just how they're doing. It. I think the biggest disagreement is definitely defunding the police. I don't think we need to defund the cops. We need to you know, fund them even more so we get better quality cops and better quality training. Um, but I mean, there's other things in there, but still there's not very many, there's not a huge difference besides you know defunding and a lot of the socialism things that they want um obviously want police reform and you know better education for kids you know because i was looking at it and i'm just like just listening to a lot of them talk even even that eli elliot guy that got freaking uh lee keltner killed up here in denver the agitator guy you know listen listen to him talk for the most part again that's yeah, it's just the way you're going about it, destroying businesses, beating people up, killing people, you know, and just being hateful. You know, how we don't really show up to their their protests and counter protests. Mm-hmm. Just let them go protest. We, I mean, we show up because we don't want this shit to be destroyed. Right. So, so let's let's talk about wrapping up. Let's uh, talking about um, some of these organizations that you work with. Of course, people can go to www.johntegan.com. Uh, and that has everything about you, your bio, uh, different sponsors that you have. What are some other things that you want to promote, John? 
Oh, well, obviously my United ADF. So again, we're not a militia. We're a humanitarian organization. We're trying to help and organize a community to protect and defend itself. Um, and again, that's a, you know, we're part of another bigger group called FEC United, which is faith, education, and commerce. And, you know, you can find us at fecunited.com. Um, and to me right now, that's, that's the biggest thing that I've been uh, trying to push because people want to know how to get organized. I mean, we're, we're completely unorganized right now because we're still trying to get our infrastructure down, but, you know, we got other, you know, other people joining up from other states, but other states. But without leadership, it's really hard to get them going and standing them up and getting them moving forward. Um, again, you don't have to be military. You just got to have some kind of leadership organizational skills to get it going. You know, because, you know, we got, you know, we got people out here giving, you know, doing free training, offering, you know, companies offering free training. Um, everybody's going to be it, it is a, it's not it's a member fee it's a membership fee also so it's not it's not a free organization um but you know one, one of the biggest thing is we're we're going to be covered under u.s law shield so if you never had you know um protection use for use of deadly force you will because it is a very good possibility that you're gonna have to use force again you know it doesn't have to be deadly but force on somebody where you're you know you'll be covered uh, for unlimited civil liability. So it's, that's a huge thing for this group. And uh, we as Americans just got to get organized together. We're, we keep saying that we're the biggest militia in the world, but we're, we're the most unorganized militia in the world too, because we don't talk to each other. I, mean, I, think, that's, I think that's where it starts is the, the discussions. <laughs> I mean, as much as people say they want dialogues and stuff, that's what we need to be doing. And that's again, that's where it starts by getting organized in your community. Cause you start knowing people, you start talking to people. And again, you prepare people for natural disasters. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. Well, John, thank you so much for coming by. You you definitely, it was an honor to meet you. You're definitely a, a hero in my books. And, and what you did uh, in Benghazi is absolutely unbelievable. And, and I want to thank you for all that you did and all that you continue doing. Guys, if you want to catch this, it's on all podcasts uh, where you find them. You can go to Apple, Spotify. It's everywhere like that. If you want to catch us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. You can find us on Facebook at DTD Podcast. It's a group that you can join. And you can find us on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. That's John Tig Tegan. I'm DJ. That's been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys. Thanks to Jim.